Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. When it comes to home repairs, things don't always go as planned. Whether it's your pipes getting clogged or your roof leaking, I can go on. Some things are beyond our skill sets. Luckily, my guest today, Mike Evans, has found an easy way to get things fixed and help ease the home repair headaches that we've all experienced. And he's doing this through a B Corp. Former co-founder of Grubhub and author of his upcoming memoir, Hangry, Mike has laid the foundation for the modern gig economy by building Fixer, a different kind of service platform that caters to both customers and employees. Mike, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Super excited to have you on. You completely disrupted and reinvented how food is delivered and how meals are delivered as founder of Grubhub back in, I don't know, the early 2000s. I think it's 2004. Most people would be super content and very happy with that incredible journey from founding all the way through public company, as well as tons of competitors trying to do what Grubhub does today. Yet, here you are. You're doing it again in a B Corp format. Let's just start there. Why? The why of it is, um, it's a combination. The, the why I'm doing something, anything, instead of just sort of laying on a beach is because I think business is a really big lever for social change. In fact, I think it's the biggest lever for social change. That happens whether a person is trying to change their environment or not, a business leader, right, or an entrepreneur. And so to do it with some intentionality means the, the communities that, that I serve and the company I'm creating or any entrepreneur serves, you can really make them better. You can, you can contribute a lot to those stakeholders in a way that is really impactful. And in fact, it happens whether you're trying to or not. You change the, companies change the environments in which they work. And so doing that, that with some intentionality can go a long way to making the world a better place for whatever better means in one's own sort of estimation. There are other services out there for handy people, right? To an extent, you've got Angie's List, you've got TaskRabbit. What's interesting to me is when you started Grubhub, I think you were the first. This is long before DoorDash and all these others. You're now going into at least adjacently a crowded market, albeit I know that you guys are different. Why choose the handy people? I think you're calling them handy people. We don't say handyman anymore. Handy people market. So when I started Fixer, the idea behind it, so I finished Grubhub. That was great. I rode my bike across the country, took some time off. And then as I was thinking about the next thing to do, you know, I spent a lot of time. Well, first of all, I wanted to find something that would just like make something easier in my life. And I, it's so hard getting stuff done around the home. And so I was like, okay, well, this... There might be something here. The thing that made me go from there might be something here to getting off the couch and actually starting another company was the reason why it's hard to get somebody to show up at your house is because the number of skilled tradespeople is just very limited compared to the demand for it. There just aren't enough people to go around that know how to do the work. And actually, it's even worse than that. The people who do do it, their average age is like 56 or 57 at this point. Most of them are aging out of the industry. And then to make it even worse, most of the trade schools have closed. Historically, the only way to enter the trades is to ask your uncle. It's been a very gender exclusive way to enter the trades. And to some degree, the trade schools might have been more inclusive, but most of them have closed. And, and many of them were not necessarily being really thoughtful about being gender inclusive back in the 50s and 60s and 70s anyway. So for all these reasons, we've got very a very small number of people who have a huge amount of demand. And we thought, uh, myself and the founding team, we thought like, well, if we just make it a really good experience and charge a premium for it, then we can actually train people from scratch, use that premium price to train people from scratch, have our own handy people. And so we're increasing the actual supply of skilled handy people. 
And so that's both a social benefit because we're creating economic mobility for folks. And it creates a really good product where you have a lot of consistency and quality. And I thought this is kind of a no-brainer to start a business like this. And it's different from the Angie's List and the Home Advisors and the Thumbtacks of the world because they're just connecting consumers with people who already know how to do the work. And what we're doing is we're actually training people. We're creating a larger pool of people that can do the work through the business model that we've created. So you're not just a platform. You're also a school in some, in some way. Um, and I use that term loosely, obviously, but you're training folks and you're getting people into these different vocations, right? We'd like to say that we're a trade school disguised as a startup. <laughs> that, that's true. We train people from scratch using a, an apprenticeship and mentorship model mostly um, as opposed to like a classroom model. And not, you know, with on-the-job training, we're the trainees partner and shadow behind the more experienced fixers in people's homes. And so that's, that is the business that we've created. And the nice thing is, you know, as you said, it's, it's a crowded space, but there's no such thing as a not crowded space in the startup world. There's always competition. You know, when Grubhub started, there was probably, um, by the time that I switched from just being the company, just being like a, a place to find restaurants to deliver to you to online ordering, there was probably 60 or 70 other competitors who had online ordering. And we just, we just had a better product than all of them, which is how we sort of won that early competition um, race. And all along, Living Social started doing online ordering and Groupon started doing online ordering. And there, was, there were hundreds that came, along, came and went during the course of that time frame. And that'll be true for this business as well. The key, I think, for building a good impact business is the business model and the social impact have to be completely coupled, right? Like they can't, it, it, they, they, it can't be a bolt-on kind of a thing. And for us, our competitive advantage is that we have our own talent pool that nobody else can access because they're W-2 employees. And that's also the social impact because we're training our own talent pool, right? And so because of those two things are so linked together, I think it gives us a, good, a big advantage over any, any competitors that might come along. It's so interesting you say that. I was just about to go there because you know your experience founding Grubhub, and then today, fast forward to some controversial issues around 1099 versus W-2s, mostly in transportation, but also in food delivery. It sounds like then you are squarely solving for that. You recognize there's a need for these people and your employees to have the same protections as full-time full-time employees, not 1099s. Yeah, they're W-2 employees with benefits that are guaranteed 40 hours a week and 12 months a, a year of work, which is sort of unheard of in the construction industry. And, and to be fair, with Grubhub, I created a bit of a Frankenstein. I, I'm not a big fan of the way that the company has really leaned into the gig economy um, roles. And in fact, I think it's been bad for business because if they had offered a hybrid of W-2, and they could still do this, if they offer a hybrid of W-2 employee work and 1099 gig economy work, you know that core of the W-2 workers are going to be the highest quality, 40-hour week, most reliable, most consistent workers to make sure that the food gets to the person's home on time and hot and um and so I actually am a little bit dumbfounded that the company hasn't taken a hybrid approach. I mean, I'm not there anymore, so it's not my decision to make. But I think that that would be a pretty big differentiator in terms of the quality of the experience compared to the other competitors that are currently out there. And that's why I think it's kind of unfair when people even refer to Fixer as being part of the gig economy, because you're, you're creating and sustaining careers for people. These aren't gigs. These are careers, right? I mean, I think that the gig economy is great in a very specific situation which is you need part-time work, you got to make some cash, or you have some set of circumstances in your home life or relationships that, that, that don't allow you to work a full-time role. And so it's a way to make money on the side, flexibility, and where you can set your own schedule. I think that that's great. What's not great is if you do it 40 or 50 hours a week and, 
as a driver for Uber, for example, and the end of three years, you've picked up exactly zero skills beyond what you had when you started. Your career hasn't advanced. Your economic mobility hasn't increased. You're not more marketable. You haven't learned anything. And so for all those reasons, it's a terrible career. It's a terrible full-time career because careers should come with the promise of advancement, of opportunity, of increased wage earning potential. You know, at some point we may offer part-time positions at Fixer for people who just want to make money on the side, but the career-oriented positions are going to be always be centered around this idea of increasing skills, making sure that people can do an, an ever-increasing set of jobs, the quality and fluency of, of those jobs that they do continues to increase, which, by the way, makes for a better consumer experience in addition to being a great career option, which is why I say that it's a good impact business because those two things are married. So you've probably seen and learned a lot yourself founding this company, right? What do you think is probably the hardest trade to learn and to master? And, and I say this because I kind of laugh, like I do shit myself and then I end up spending twice the amount of money because I have to hire someone to fix what I did. But like, I have no problem doing electric work in my house. It'll kill me. I'm scared doing plumbing, which won't kill me. <laughs> it makes no sense. I'm just kind of curious just because you probably learned a lot as well. And it's been very interesting for you. What is that hardest skill to master? The skill that has to be mastered for a handy person is problem solving and confidence. Like literally the ability to Google something that you don't know, look it up, apply the knowledge, and then evaluate the results objectively. That's really important. Now, you don't want to do that in a customer's home. You don't want the first time that that happens to be in a customer's home. But after you've done 2,000 jobs, you've seen a little bit of everything. And so that confidence and confidence happens over time. And then you start being able to bridge knowledge between different types of jobs. And so that's probably the, the hardest thing to learn is the confidence and problem solving that go hand in hand. In terms of a specific skill, which I think is actually the question you asked, the skill that is the hardest to master is also the easiest to learn, and that's drywall. So it's very, very easy to learn to patch a hole in drywall. It's very, very hard to make a smooth wall with tape seams that nobody can see and do it quickly and cost, of, cost effectively. It's, it actually takes that, like a thousand hours of practice to get really good at getting the mud on and smoothing it and sanding it and so that it just looks like any other piece of a wall. Well, yeah, I mean, it's really a three-step process and if you do, to do it right, it takes a couple of days because it has to dry right or you're using a hair, a hair dryer type device. I've done it, trust me, and I have- Nobody wants to pay the hourly rate for the hair dryer, by the way. Like, they want us to come back the next day. I did it last week, actually. And even then the guys have to come back because there's like this little bubble that popped up out of nowhere, you know? Um, but you're right. That is easy to learn, hard to master. That's, that's a great example. That you'll see is um, there's all these sort of edge conditions that come up. Like a lot, one, one thing that happens, and this happened more than once, is we'll go in and we'll do the drywall patch and then we'll clean up the carpet. And then actually carpet cleaners will come in like that afternoon. But then the carpets are wet. So the drywall, because they're high humidity in the room, the drywall won't dry. And so we go back the next day and we're like, this is going to take a week to dry because the humidity in the room and things like that until you've seen it happen. And there's a thousand little things like that until you've actually experienced it and know how to plan for it. That's what the essence of being a handy person is, is, is sort of adapting to those difficult situations. How do you start a business like Fixer from literally nothing? Did you have to buy an existing asset? Like, how did you do it? No, I don't. I have a strong opinion on not buying existing assets and building things from scratch. Got together in my apartment, myself and Katie, a friend of mine who could fix everything, and another friend of mine. And I texted five other of my friends I knew couldn't fix anything. And I said, hey, that business I was talking about, it's open now. What do you want us to fix? And then within about like half an hour, one of my friends said, hey, can you come hang some shelves? 
So Katie went out there to do that. I signed up for a Square account so I could charge charge him. My other friend, Zach, he started like making the website. Like in the first hour, we started making revenue. And so then, you know, as we developed the business, everything that I just said, those are the building blocks and they can all become a lot more advanced, right? Instead of just texting my five friends, we built a marketing program, right? Instead of sending a message to Katie to say, hey, now go from Chris's house to Joe's house, um, we built a, a dispatching system, right? And then instead of just knowing somebody who happened to be able to fix something, you know, we built a training program and a hiring program that like has a pretty big throughput. And so you, you start by just starting. That's how you start these. You figure out the, the most simple version of the thing that you can charge for and you do it and you charge for it. You don't say, you don't ask people if they would pay for it. You literally take their credit card and charge them because there's a lot of people who will say they would pay for something. There's a lot fewer number who will actually pay for a service. The faster you can stand up the basics, the better. You did no market research. You weren't like, you know, doing audience segmentation. You weren't like trying to target by zip codes. I mean, eventually you get there. I'm, I'm just, this is, I mean, I actually love this because I, I think sometimes these firms over-index or over-think, over-complicate these things because what you're saying sounds very simple. That's why I ask. Yeah, I mean, the first business I created was Grubhub, right? And I created Grubhub because I wanted a pizza. I called some restaurants and I put them on a website. And then I ordered a pizza. And then I did this year. I still don't really know what market research is. Like I created a multi-billion dollar company and I'm like quite, not quite, I mean, I know what it is in the context of like a multi-million dollar company that has to create a, a brand strategy and content pillars and an execution go-to-market plan. Like I understand what market research is in that context. But in terms of starting a business, like if you're hungry and you want a pizza, create a website that lets you have pizza. If you want to get a rain barrel installed and you're having a hard time doing it on Thumbtack because nobody calls you back, create a better solution. I mean, I think the best market research is, there's a caveat to this. The best market research is what is the thing that I want that doesn't exist out there? The exception to that is college students shouldn't do that because, because college students all want the same thing, which is cheap textbooks. And there's been a million companies that have been created to make cheap textbooks and you're just not going to make money doing it. That is the market research. So fill a need that you, that you have, I think, is a, is a great market research strategy. I'm going to guess the part of the genius behind this is you already have a lot of scar tissue on the logistics side on distribution, and you were able to put that knowledge to work to at least solve for that because that would terrify anybody from starting a business like this. How do I actually execute against it? Yeah, it's really the execution is really hard in this business. I underestimated how hard it was going to be. I mean, figuring out the dispatch, figuring out the training program, figuring out quality assurance and utilization rates and all of these different things have been, has been really challenging. I wasn't too worried about the marketing because I had, had created a, a national brand previously. The thing, that, the thing that really scared me was I'm not an educator. Like, I don't know how to train people. I don't know how to, like, st- I don't know how to open a school. But with typical like, startup bro arrogance, I was like, ah, I'll figure it out as I go along. And, uh, and we did. But we stubbed our toes a lot. And we had to get a lot of expertise to help us figure out how to make an effective training program. And I assume all sorts of different accreditations and licensing and whatnot. We're licensed as a general contractor. There's no accreditation. There's no national and there's no state accreditations for handy people. So we had to create our own standards for for quality. And then part of what's been helpful with being a B Corp is having that you know, the third party audit of our policies to make sure that we're actually being we're creating value for the, our employee constituencies. And so we did that with B Lab, and then we've done that to some degree with the training as well. Although. Now that we've done 30,000 jobs, we just ha- we have a really good idea of what a good handy person knows when they start. 
I want to get back to B Corp in a second. What trades or what services don't you provide that you're looking to provide? Probably the next one we'll move into is HVAC because we have a subscription service where we take care of a person's home sort of soup to nuts and, and they don't have to work like a sort of like a, a landlord for your house. And that by, des- by sort of by definition has to include full HVAC servicing, heating, heat and air conditioning. So that's the next training module that we're adding in. Is insurance prohibitively high with this or not so much? Yeah, I mean, insurance is expensive. The, the most the most expensive aspect of the insurance is workers' comp, just because it's highly regulated and very expensive. You know, the flip side of that is when people use our company, which is a fully established company, we're in five cities, and we're in Chicago, Dallas, Phoenix, Denver, and Seattle. And we have national coverage on insurance and all of those things. You know, the difference is if you just hire Chuck in a truck down the street, he might do really good work. But if Chuck breaks his arm, he's not getting paid, you know, even if it's just totally not his fault. And so having the workers insured appropriately as part of the social benefit, it's part of the, maybe not social benefit, but it's, it's the standard for doing business. Like it, it just doesn't make sense to put people, for people who have to work with their hands, it's really important that they are insured well and that they're covered in the case of, of an accident. It's also important to have a safety program that keeps accidents from happening, but it's just part of the cost of doing business. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I figured. I, I mean, in almost any business, but especially when... In businesses like this, as well as when you're entering people's homes, you know, anything can happen. So that's why I was kind of curious. Uh, I want to go back to B Corp. So I've actually had them on. It's funny you say anything can happen. Our core, our first safety value is any accident can be prevented. We literally have the opposite opinion about safety. No injury was inevitable. Anything can be prevented. And so like, that's actually where we start with our safety program. Not anything can happen. <laughs> is that the same thing as everything is avoidable? Certainly, if you avoid small events, then they don't cascade to big events. And it, you, mitigating risk is a big part of that. And just being thoughtful about thoughtful and aware about, you know, environment and situationally aware. Those are all those all go into it. Years ago, the first house we bought, we were getting we had to get a new well drilled. And I don't know if any if you've ever gone through that, but it's a kind of a terrible process to live like in the sticks. I was down in the basement. I had just started my business. It was like 16 years ago. And I was down in the basement and the guy was in like this French drain crawl space. He was already too large for the space. So he like pushed himself into the space. He was moving too quickly and he took a 240 hit uh, on it. Yeah. And all I heard was thump. And I'm like, for like five seconds, I'm like, all right. There's no, I'm like, you're okay. Nothing. He's just <laughs> like, oh my God, there's going to be a dead man. I'm not even able to pull him out of the space. This guy was about 240, 250 himself. You know, I'm 140 pounds wet, right? Thankfully he survived. But I'm like, that's what I mean by, you know, anything can happen. But like, this is a guy who's been in the business for 25, 30 years. He knew what he was doing. He was moving too fast and he just needed to slow down. Oftentimes it is human error, right? So you need to train people to slow down, to do it right. Because not only can they injure the people they're serving, but they could also endanger their own lives, right? It's absolutely true. And, and it's, um, if you want to create a business that creates economic mobility and social impact for the, for, for the people who work for you, it's pretty important that you're also, you care about them not getting hurt, let alone the insurance cost impact. That's just a critical piece of any trade company. So you applied or you started out being mindful of the fact that you're going to be a B Corp from day one, right? Or from whatever. I mean, I, I'm very familiar with the application process. I had B Corp on. I've had a ton of B certified companies on. It is arduous and it's not one and done, right? You get audited and you have to reapply or recertify rather every what, two, three years. Every three years. Yeah. We're doing the recertification right now. In fact, you know what I loved about the process was as we went through the questions, it made me 
there were things I hadn't considered. So you, the way it works is, and you're aware of this, you get points for certain answers to certain questions, and if you get enough points, you get the B certification after the audit. That's a grossly simplified version of what happened. But some of the questions just really, you know, really surprised me. Like, how, what percentage above the living wage is your minimum employee pay? And then that means you have to go find out what the minimum living wage is in your city based on uh, cost of living. And it's just like, it's a really valuable thing to consider. Or there are questions around scheduling. I think that I think I remember there being questions around scheduling if you have consistent schedules, because it turns out consistent schedules allow people who are primarily responsible for childcare um, to be able to hold down a full-time job if their schedules aren't changing all the time. And, and we're very specific. I mean, we picked the name Fixer because it's non-gendered. Um, we're very spe- specifically about trying to create a gender-inclusive training program and entry path into the trades. And so those questions are the questions that then, then made us ask ourselves that question. I, I'm not exactly sure how it happened, but it was part of the B, during the B Corp assessment. We ended up with better policies that actually work better for, for women in our workforce, women and non-binary folks in our workforce who, who generally share, have more of the lion's share of childcare. Not only did the B Corp push us to consider the social impact of our decisions, it made us consider policies that also were good for the economic value that we create, for the profit that we generate. And I think that with a well-designed impact business where the profit and the purpose are married and can't be decoupled, asking these sort of mission-oriented questions and impact-oriented questions actually drive profit as well. The opposite is true as well. So, I mean, that's what I loved about the B Impact, the impact assessment that we did was it just made us think about things we hadn't thought of before. The earlier you do it, the better your business is because while you're doing it, while you're building the business, then it's really true to the core of what you're doing. It's not a bolt-on, which is very hard to do, almost impossible. Yeah, and I learned this lesson at Grubhub because when I was there, the day I left, I think we had 65,000 independent restaurants and we had a single chain that had like nine locations. That was the biggest chain on the website. And we were the, the rubric by which we decided if we were going to add a feature was does this feature or does this idea or does this pricing change or whatever, does it make an independent restaurant more likely to be open a year from now if they use it than if not? Like that was the rubric by which we judged everything. And then I left and nobody was asking that question anymore because it wasn't embedded in the, in the structure of the company and, and the company moved much more towards chains um, in terms of the restaurants that have signed up. And so one of the things I was thinking about when I started the next company is I wanted to embed sort of the moral compass for the company in the structure of the company and in every person that we hired, as opposed to a small number of individuals. I'm not that great of a person in terms of like, like, I, like it's not like I was all of the morality at Grubhub before I left and then it was all gone. I, that's overselling the point. And there was a lot of other people there who cared a lot about these things too. But it is true that without anything structural, as a public company that is trying to make quarterly profits, a lot of those decisions get pushed aside. So embedding that in the company early is actually, I think, critical. If Fixer has an opportunity one day to go public, is that something you would ever pursue again? Or do you think that it is just too challenging given the moral compass you just described? And look, there are tons of public companies who do well by doing good. Uh, It is a challenge. And I think the degree of difficulty, to your point, is 10x because of that, because of the shareholders, despite ESG and all this, everything else that's, that's going on and what they say. But how do you view that now, having been through the process? Going through an IPO is great. Everybody should do it. <laughs> uh, everybody should do it once. I'm not sure a lot of people would do it twice. It's a complicated decision with a lot of factors. I think one of the things will be, is there an opportunity to be an example of a public company that does 
is focused on the benefit for its constituencies, not just the, all of its constituents, not just its shareholders. And can that be a part of a national conversation, a difficult national conversation, but I don't mind getting yelled at on the news, on a news station if I get to like sort of talk about the, the value of doing both at the same time. So there's a, there's a lot to be considered. I might do it. Part of doing it needs to have a very intentional plan and strategy around how you benefit both shareholders and constituencies in a public company. Like, what does that look like? And how do you talk about yourselves? And, and what legal structures do you put in place? I mean, the public benefit corporation structure is helpful for that. Um, in fact, protects companies from being sued by shareholders um, if they're if they're working according to their to their mission. And so, I think actually, I think it's actually a really advantageous way to be a public company in some ways. It's a complicated sort of decision to make. Also, why IPO? Like for the most part, companies IPO because everybody wants to get paid. And this company, like certainly I want a financial return, but you know, I'm going to run it for 20 years and try and reboot trade education in the United States. That's our goal. It's not necessarily to like get money, you know, make get rich quick. There's a lot of capital that people would love to be able to put to work in the private market as well if it's capital that you need, at least to, to scale and expand the company. Yeah, absolutely. So so you, when you left Grubhub, and you alluded to this earlier, I'm just fascinated by it. And I was telling a colleague of mine before you jumped on, I haven't even driven across country yet. Meanwhile, here you are in what, 2017, and you basically designed, a, it looked like, a, I think you called it a bent, but it's basically a bike and you rode across country, right? Over like what, 68 days, 70 days or something like that? Yeah. yeah. And you rode from Virginia to, was it Seattle? No, uh, Portland. Oregon, yeah. Oregon. Oregon. South of Portland, yeah. South of Portland. Is it Oregon or Oregon? I always wonder. Colorado, Colorado. Anyway, it was that like, because some might think it's a little cliche, right? Okay, you know, tech startup guy, whatever. Exits needs to like decompress. But was that part of it? Was it to just go back to first principles and recenter yourself? And that's okay, because I get it. I totally get it. And I'm in awe of it, and I respect it. Yeah, so the long answer to that question you can read in the book that I wrote about it called it's called Hangry, and uh, it should be out in about a year. Uh, you can sign up for a pre-order at mikeevans.com. The short answer is, I guess, all of the above to what you just said. It certainly was about decompressing, but maybe it's best shared with. I, I can just share an anecdote. So you know, I was riding my bike cross country. I was in Kansas, and this kid. I was camped in. I put my tent up. I was camped in like a town square where they allowed camping for for cyclists who were on Trans Am trail. About 300 people do it a year. And so I was camping and this kid came up and gave me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. He's like, well, it just seemed like you might be hungry. All you've got is your tents. And he was just being nice. And uh, it was very touching. Literally like a month prior, I was on a private jet paid for by Citibank eating like lobster and shrimp cocktail, right? With an investment. And the investment banker, to his credit, is a very highly effective, hardworking individual, but he cared about he cared about generating wealth. That was what he wanted. Which of those two people do you want to spend an evening with? Right? Do you want to spend an evening with the investment banker or the kid who brought you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? And I think most people would answer the kid with the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. The generosity, the genuineness, the kindness that he that he displayed without trying to get anything in return. It was really touching. And so juxtaposing those two things, that was one of the moments I was looking for when I went on the bike trip. Like how do I sort of unplug myself from this New York Wall Street IPOs, Silicon Valley startup world, recenter as just a normal human being again? And so that's what I was trying to do. And it works a little bit. I mean, I think we all revert to type a little bit. But that was where the genesis of I think I'm going to do this again, and it's going to be a more impact-oriented business than the last one I did. That's, that's where the genesis of that idea started. 
So I do have a technical question. Basically, I think you called it a bent, but it's a recumbent bike, right? So you were... Yeah, recumbent. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that harder? In some ways, I guess you do save your back and your neck in some ways, but isn't it also, isn't it harder to actually be more efficient than being on a, a normal bike or a regular bike? Yeah. I mean, the technical answer is it's about 15% less efficient going uphill and it's about 40% more efficient going downhill. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. So you're, you're getting more speed going downhill. Yeah. And it has a windshield on it. So it's much more efficient downhill. But the reason I did it was not about efficiency and it wasn't even about my back or shoulders. I simply wanted to be like looking at the horizon while I was riding and like taking in the country. I just wanted to see the scenery instead of looking at the white stripe on the ground as I was just pedaling. And so I just wanted to look around, head on a swivel, you know, sometimes looking at mountains, sometimes it was cows, sometimes it was chickens, like like whatever. I was just looking around. And so that was the reason I used the, the recumbent. It was worth, it was a little bit more effort, but um, well, it was probably a wash because it did save my neck and shoulders and wrists. It wasn't, this is gonna sound weird. After like week two, it wasn't physically all that challenging. Like your body adapts pretty quickly to riding six hours a day. And I wasn't riding you know, when I, I went east to west, and so when I hit the Appalachians, that was hard. Getting over the Blue Ridge Parkway was really hard. But the Rockies were like a breeze by the time I got there. I had, been, I had ridden like several thousand miles. I was like, oh, is this a mountain? Like, this, this is not, no big deal. So you get you get used to it. Your body really does adapt. I was going to ask you about the uh, the bug shield that you had. I guess it is good for aero, but also good because it probably reduced the amount of like bugs and flies in your face because that could be pretty brutal. No one wants that, especially during warmer months. And like day five, a bee flew into my like eye and stung me right <laughs> on the nose and it like all oh. swelled up and everything. So the bug shield did not work. Uh, oh. I, ended up, I ended up wearing glass, like sunglasses after that, which I probably should have had on anyway. Oh, 100%. And did you have any support people? Any, were you self-geared? You carried all yourself? Tents and, uh, tents and bike repair stuff on the bike and uh, usually uh, like the next meal's worth of food. But I almost always just stopped at restaurants and ate at restaurants. A lot of diners. You know, diners in the United States are amazing. Like, they're always the same. They're always, they all serve the same, like, omelets and scrambled eggs and hash browns and always the same nice people. It's like, that was kind of a touchstone across the country is, you know what you're going to get when you go into a diner in Virginia. It's the same thing you get in Oregon. I try not to be political. And this is not a political question. But so what year did you do this? Was it 2017? 2014. Oh, 2014. Uh, it's 2014. All right. So this yeah. is uh, pre-Trump. Yeah. Yeah. I just think I ask only because I think that had you done it 2016 or even today, I just wonder how different that landscape and those discussions and those diners might have been. You don't have to answer that question. I just think about that because I have a great answer for this question. I would love to answer this question. Here's what I experienced in like going into a town in, in any given town across the entire country, regardless, blue, red, doesn't matter. The people were kind. They were generous. They were giving. They loved talking to me. And it didn't really matter what their political spectrum is. The other thing I experienced is in every single one of those towns, they thought the people in the town next over, they were okay. But the town beyond that, those people are all crazy. So like it, there, was this, there was this concept of like the other that I started to experience where, where people who were like more than 40 or 50 miles away, like weren't in, weren't in the tribe. And they were all, always described in really negative terms. And I get to that town, and guess what? They were kind and gracious and wonderful and friendly, right? And, I, and they would say, talk about the town, like two down the road. They're all like, watch out for those drivers. They're all crazy. And I get there, and everybody's kind and gracious and wonderful and giving. And uh, it just town after town after town, I experienced massive amount of generosity. It really restored my faith in humanity 
it just wasn't matched by what what I was seeing on TV. To this day, I've never been able to reconcile the rabid hatred on network TV, regardless of political spectrum, with the individuals that you meet in either cities or in small town America. So I don't know. There's something that that our collective perception of of the other is um, it's really negative, and it shouldn't be. Like the people that I met, without exception, were wonderful. So. No, I, I love hearing that. I do wonder, and maybe you think about this too, if you weren't like a middle-aged white guy, sorry, I was saying from one middle-aged white guy to another, if you would have had a slightly different experience, I wonder, or if you were trans or you know, non-binary. I just, I often think about that and maybe I think about it too, too much. I, I, think that, um, I think that I had the privilege of, of being a white guy riding a bike across the United States who was incredibly non-threatening because I was on a bike, right? Right. <laughs> But there were other people that, that did this trip as well the same year I did who didn't have that same experience everywhere. For the most part, they experienced the same level of kindness, but they experienced more exceptions to that than I did, for sure. And uh, I think it took some bravery, you know, some of the non-cis white male folks who I was traveling with that, to do that trip. And I think that bravery was worded mostly with kindness. Uh, the, the vast majority of it, from what I saw and from what they told me, but there were exceptions, and it was it was hard to, it was hard to watch. It was hard to see. You know, uh, years ago, um, my now wife, then girlfriend, we we're maybe dating six months. We signed up for this thing called AIDS Ride, which doesn't exist anymore, but it's basically a ride to uh, raise money for AIDS research. Is that the Tampere one in like the Northeast? Yes, it, well, yeah. it was. This is the late nineties. Very controversial guy who started it, raised a lot of, lot of money. The controversy was, did all the money go to AIDS research? And uh, I don't even know what happened, but uh, my wife convinced me to do this. And it was, it was a simple ride. I mean, it's like nothing for you at the time. It was my longest ride I've ever done before I even got into like, triathlon and stuff. And it was from you know, Philly to DC. And the, most, the only thing I remember about it, besides feeling great that we finished and we raised a lot of money, was that one town I went in. Uh, we were going through, and this is like July, so super hot. People would come out, they'd hose us down, they'd give us water, they'd bring us lemonade, they'd bring us cookies, right? This other town is actually near Amish, Amish country. People were throwing rocks at us. They were calling us um, all sorts of horrible names, horrible, horrible things. And so I'm like a straight guy as an ally riding with my friends and my now now wife. And, you know, they don't see me as anything, but, you know, they're fearing me, right? And I felt what it's actually like to be, at the time, perceived as, as a gay man who is being attacked, even though I'm not. And I'm like, wow. And there's only one way to feel that. And unfortunately, I felt that kind of vitriol and hatred. Another town over, I felt all sorts of love. And um, the only way to experience it is to kind of jump into it. Um, so that's why I asked the question of what your experience had been like and what it would have been like if it would have been different. That's profound. I remember the AIDS ride. I was in school in Boston at the time and it being a, a really big deal and controversial for reasons that are hard to understand why it was controversial. Yeah, I think they're just, I don't know if they knew like all the money went to the causes they said it was going to go to, but the guy who started it was very connected to AMFAR. And I think they did a lot for AIDS research and awareness, which is also um, as important. Listen, Mike, I, you've been so generous with your time and this has been such an interesting conversation. And like you said at the outset, I think, I can't remember if we were off air or on air, but we could talk for hours, but I really appreciate this. I wish you all the best at Fixer. I am curious one day what the what the other names that you didn't go with might have been. But I love Fixer, especially because it's uh, non-gendered. I think that's really smart. And I love what you're doing. And um, I think the next thing you're going to probably have to do is get more 
people to be airline pilots because I think that's the other industry that's also has a very, very high average age and a lot of people turning out of it. Hopefully I'll be at this business for the, until I retire. I don't think I'm going to start a third one. And this is a lot of fun when, I, when I'm running it. And it's really rewarding too, to be making an impact. So thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, one last thing, give you one more plug. When does Hangry come out? And I know we can pre-order. Hangry comes out in spring of 2023. You can sign up for a pre-order. As soon as I have the pre-order link, I can email it to you if you sign up at mikeevans.com. Awesome. I will sign up. I got it. All right. Thanks Thank you again. And good luck with everything. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, organizations, and people. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our production team, including Maria Bias, Michael Grubbs, Anna Lamb, Haley Sackett, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show, sponsorship opportunities, and host by emailing BOP at kwtglobal.com or visiting aaronquitkin.com. Find us on LinkedIn and Instagram under Brand on Purpose Podcast.